All right, good morning. We have just a few announcements, and then I want to cover the slide behind me. Um, but let me um, start with the handouts. And they were kind of, we had them at the front door, then we added them back here later on. Hopefully, every, hopefully everyone will receive one. One is half a page, has a tree on it. He's going to be covering that today. And it's on the back table to, the, to my right over here. And then um, conflict starts in the heart. There should be two handouts. So there should be those two. If you don't have those, go ahead and pick those up. And then um, as far as notes, it's the same notes we had last week because we handed out class two and class three. So they should um, both be in there. If you're missing one, you can go and grab Julie's back there. She can separate them for you and get class three. Um, also, which brings to note, the website is having some issues. It's not just ours. It's the whole church website, the link to our photos, the link to our downloads. They're not working. So they are working on that. It's already been submitted. Um, hopefully they'll have that up and going here pretty soon so you can download things because that's where we put a lot of our stuff. Um, the videos are working because that's a different server, so that, that seems to be connecting fine with the videos when we get those up. Um, so that's also with the food. So we had the food figured out, and the folks that got the emails brought it. Thank you very much. The, um, the full list of all the dates with everyone is also on the website, and you can pull that down, and it's just a PDF that shows all the names and all the dates that are on there. Um, there are some, some that are missing, they won't know it because they're in the choir. We left them off because I think you want to eat before they get here, halfway through the class. Um, so they're not on that list. Um, what's the other thing? Oh, yeah, and they're also, during the conference, we have scheduled everyone right through the conference. So we need to move the folks that were there, and I think we need a total of 15 classes. And so we'll have to move that one to the end. Um, so I'll give you the updated dates on those um, for that group that's during the conference because we're not meeting during the conference, which is a few weeks away. Um, website handouts. So let's talk about this guy here. So there's some questions revolving around so ACBC. I know there's, there's, just, there's a lot of detail, and this is not you. It's not a lack of your understanding. It's a lack of us trying to explain all the details that are there. So I'm just trying to go through it very quickly. But the, um, there's two sides to this. You see, the blue side is what we're requiring, the church is requiring for being a counselor at, and I'm separating the, the terminology here, counselor. This is counseling training. But there's counselor training is the, the cohort that's going through, that's going all the way through ACBC certification. But on the, the top side, the blue side, is just the other requirements that we have. And so there's homework, there's memory verses, there's uh, projects that are included in that. Um, but you notice the very first part is the qualifications. And so I posted online this week the qualifications, more detail on there. And this chart is also included on there to help decipher what that process looks like. And it also explains why. Why do we go through so much process at the, at the beginning? ACBC is just a certification saying, here's some good training process to make sure you know what you need to know. And we're saying you're certified. That means you, you have gone through the disciplines. And does that mean you're ready to actually be counseling people? Well, that's up to the churches to determine how that criteria lies. And so that's the criteria that we have to make sure that everyone's ready and qualified to do that. And so that's what the separation there is. The phase one, two, and three down at the bottom, those are the requirements from ACBC. On top of the, layered on top of that is what we require as far as those processes, okay? The, the, there may be some more detail when the website's allowed to download the links. You can see it on there, but I would encourage you to look at that and read through it, because it is, kind of gives you a bit, even if you're not going through the certification process, it kind of, you see where this lies in the big picture of things, okay? You have any questions on that, you can certainly um, see me afterwards, or Daniel, and we can 
um, explain it some more if it's needed, okay? Um, let me pray, and then we'll get Daniel get started. It's a big lesson today. Lord, we thank you for your word you've given to us, and as we've been learning that the word is central to um, counsel our own hearts, and as well as if, as we counsel others, we pray, pray that we know the word of God very well so that we may be true to what you've given us. And as we learn today and about our hearts and how our hearts play a role in that as counselors as well as the counselees, I pray that you would um, open our hearts so that we can understand it and we desire and with all humility learn what is in front of us so that we can be good stewards of your word and um, the people that you place in front of us. We pray your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Steve. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to James chapter 4. As I mentioned before, as we get started each time, we're going to look at a passage that either addresses kind of a, a big picture item in biblical counseling or a key text that I use frequently in biblical counseling. And this, this text this morning, James 4, 6, falls into that latter category it's one I often mention when people first come into my office. And so as people come, uh, they have all sorts of different problems, difficulties, trials, hurts, conflicts, whatever it may be. And after there's been an opportunity for us to spend some time to get to know one another, to catch up just a little bit, I'll oftentimes open my Bible and read this very verse. And James 4, 6, the latter part of that verse, if you have the NASB, is in all caps, and it says... God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I'll explain that for our purposes, because we think about counseling, a proud person, biblically speaking, is a person who does not want to listen to God. Right? They have a hardened heart. Right? They want to go their own way and do their own thing. And the Bible says that God is opposed to that person, right? Because if, as we go our own way, do our own thing, which direction are we headed? Away from God, all right? Into sin and rebellion, ultimately. And so the Bible says that God is opposed to that person, but it also says that he gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. And I'll, I'll explain to them that there's really two main senses of the word grace in the Bible. You guys are familiar, I think, with Ephesians 2, and kind of that uh, grace there, the unmerited favor of God that we are saved by grace and not our own works in particular. And so God was kind to us. In other words, in salvation, okay, and granted it to us, not on our merit, okay, but because of his kindness in particular. That's grace. It's also mentioned in Hebrews chapter four, if you want to turn over there, Hebrews four. In verse 15 and 16, Speaking of Jesus, the author writes, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to what? To help in a time of need. And so grace, God's grace is certainly his unmerited kindness, but in this sense here in Hebrews 4, and I believe also in James 4, it's speaking of God's help, 
Okay, God's strengthening, God's encouragement, God's empowerment, okay, his help to do something. And so as a person, in other words, humbles themselves, God gives grace to the humble as they humble themselves to, to really hear and listen from God, God's promise to them is his help. And so as someone has come into my office, I, I read this verse and I walk through this explanation very often because I want to encourage them that it takes humility that come to my office, right? Anybody who comes through my doorway, I think has some measure of humility, most definitely. While all of us have pride to some measure as well too, it's incredibly hard to fill out the form and to come sit before anybody and say, here are my problems, my struggles, my difficulties, and I don't really know what to do about them. Please help me. And so I want to encourage them in the fact that this is God's promise. As you have humbled yourself, Right? And I will pray that God would continue to help you to respond and listen to his interpretation of your problem right? and to apply its solution. And that we know in that that God directly promises his help. And so with that in mind, I pray uh, with them and I'd like to pray with us as well too as we continue to really understand God's heart, his will for each one of us as we humble ourselves and seek to really understand uh, today's message and the messages beyond. Uh, today's lesson is, is of critical importance. I'd say as, as we look at really the ministry of biblical counseling, this is probably the most important lesson, okay, in many different ways, because it understands who we are in particular and the reasons why we do what we do, looking at the heart. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for our time. We do give you glory, Lord, for your word and the, the instruction, the understanding that it provides. Your word says that, that your word gives light, it gives understanding to simple. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to comprehend uh, the truth in your word about anthropology, that is who we are in particular. Lord, to understand our hearts, Lord, from where all of our behavior, all of our lives comes up out of. Lord, as we do this today, I, I pray that we would also understand worship and the vital role that worship plays in our hearts, Lord, and how it directs everything that we do. It animates our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray, God, for your wisdom, your understanding, and encouragement. Now, as we turn uh, to our lesson and an understanding, better understanding of your word, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we'll start where we did last time, and that's just a quick review of what we looked at in our last meeting. And that was the theological foundations of biblical counseling, the theological foundation of biblical counseling. And the foundational presupposition, if you remember, stated is the inspired and inerrant word of God is the only authoritative source by which we can know absolute truth. It is totally sufficient to address any sin issue or any issue to which it speaks and for which it claims to be sufficient. And we looked at 2 Peter 1, verses 2 and 3, where God promises Okay, that he has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so we see that God's word is the only true foundation for us to understand our world, our own lives, okay, what the problems are, what the solutions are in particular as it speaks to those. And so we looked at the process of developing our theology that is from the inspired and inerrant word and how all, upon all these levels we build practical theology, and that is the ministry or system that we teach as biblical counseling. Level one was understanding the canonical scriptures, that is, which, which, what is and what is not scripture. Level two was to take those scriptures and to apply the grammatical historical method of exegesis to pull 
from them, okay, God's intended meaning, okay, an understanding of those texts. From there, we develop a biblical theology at level three and level four, a systematic theology, so that now that we have the completed word of God, we have a systematic, that is a big picture understanding of all of the different areas to which the word of God speaks. Okay, who are we? Right, who's God? What's the problem solution, etc.? What are the methods that we would use to change and grow, etc.? And so we looked at some implications from the theological pyramid level five, that is uh, practical theology, and that's where the discipline of biblical counseling falls, is incomplete, okay, without levels one to four. We can't have level five without one through four. We don't just jump ahead and begin throwing scripture ultimately before we've really understood. And again, these this process happens kind of together, okay? It doesn't mean with what we know, we don't need to know everything from levels one to four necessarily to begin practicing, but we want to have a foundation. And the, the better our foundation is, the better practice like level five that we'll be able to accomplish. Also too, another implication is levels one to four without five is incomplete and ineffective, okay? We want to have a thorough foundation and an understanding of God's word, but we also need to apply it. We need to practice those things. James 1, as we talked about last time, calls us to be doers of the word. And then lastly, we looked at a lot of different ologies, okay, a lot of different uh, sections of scripture that speak to all these different areas okay, that are foundational and so critical and important for counseling. And so here was the main application. For our counsel to honor the Lord, the Bible must serve as the authority. We need to have levels one to four in place, which of course uh, what we're doing today and in the days ahead are certainly going to help with that, an understanding of the Bible. Before five, before we practice, okay, said another way, for counseling to be considered biblical, Scripture must have an active, functional control over everything that we do in counseling, okay, as God's Word speaks to those things. All right, any questions? Have we warmed up enough to uh, be able to raise our hands? Anybody had questions from last week at all? All right, I think what I'm going to do is have uh, Steve get some free books, okay, maybe for the future. And that way, anybody who has a question, you know, we can just give you a book. And so there's be some extra motivation and encouragement to interact. And, and just so you guys know, too, you're actually allowed to raise your hand. If I'm in the middle of teaching, you want to ask something or clarify something, you're, you feel free to do that as well, too. I know that kind of goes against the grain of, of kind of how we normally, uh, you know, teach here in these larger settings, but that's totally fine. I want you guys to understand that's really what we're here to do. And it's, if, you know, I, I can guarantee you I'm not perfectly clear, all right, for every single person's perspective, understanding, et cetera. And you guys almost certainly have questions that will help clarify and help someone else as well, too. Feel free to raise your hand, ask questions. Hopefully with these lights, they feel brighter than they normally are. Uh, I, can, I can still see you guys out there, especially if you're kind of in the back there. But yeah, if you guys have questions uh, as well too, Steve and I are always here afterwards. We'd love to answer your questions. But like I said earlier, this lesson is so critical, so vital. So we'll, we'll uh, there we go, thank you. We will uh, uh, encourage you with some books next time around. So if you can get one question, you get a free book. So if there's an, a book or two you haven't bought that's already on the list, maybe we can hand one of those out. All right, let's look at understanding man's need of change understanding man's need of change. We looked at Genesis 1 the first time we met, if you guys remember, we looked at the first ever counsel given. 
Um, unfortunately, that state, okay, Genesis 1 and 2, did not continue forever. And so we need to look at an understanding of man's need of change. We'll look at a kind of a biblical overview, the big picture. And so we want to look at a macro look at the problem of sin that is its origin and progression as it affects worship. And as we think about change, you guys, worship is going to be at the center, okay, of any change and transformation that ultimately happens in our lives, whether we're aware of it or not. Today, I hope that will be much more clear. And so let's look at a macro look at the problem of sin. Number one, it's beginning, okay? It began, that is, sin began in Genesis chapter three. Man had divine counsel before the fall. fall. He was innocent, but not autonomous or independent, okay? We were required, in other words, to follow the counsel of God's word to glorify God. Big picture, the, without the word, life without the word is absurd. Okay, it has no purpose, no aim, no goal, no clarity, future, etc. But what happened soon after, okay, this Genesis 1 and 2 experience, see man turn from divine counsel to devilish counsel, unfortunately. There was doubt injected. This is what Satan did, is, is he immediately, okay, the very first thing he did was to attack God's truth. Okay, has God said? And then eventually, through distortion, denial, okay, uh, you certainly will not die. And so God, Satan went after God's truth, okay, an attack on it. He tempted man, and the result was that man ultimately de-rejected divine counsel and suffered the consequences. There were some immediate consequences. That is that Adam and Eve and all of mankind gained experiential knowledge, not only of good, but of evil as well, too. They then had no power to affect true, genuine change that they needed, that is, regeneration. They gained guilt and separation from God, blindness to the glory of God, even rejecting responsibility for these things as Adam blame shifted immediately, and that's continued throughout human history. We've developed problems with God, with others, and even ourselves as well, too, as we think about ourselves. And what these immediate consequences have been called by theologians is, is a total depravity. It's one explanation. Uh, R.C. Sproul, I like the term that he used. It's, he called it radical corruption. Usually when you say totally depraved, you have to immediately explain it's not as bad as it could be, which is completely true. But what radical corruption does is it says that it, it sin touched every part of who we are. Okay, sin touched every part of who we are. And so you can think about it this way. If you had a glass of water, okay, What's good about the water? Well, all of it, okay? It's good for many things. But if you were to take a drop of poison and to drop it into the water, what part becomes poisonous? Well, all of it, okay? It impacted the whole, and that's exactly how sin impacted us. It impacted our speech, okay? Our thinking, our desires, our ambitions, our emotions, all, all of who we are was impacted, even our uh, physical bodies as well, too. The fact that we will die. We are now subjected to illness, okay, and decay and things like that. And so there was a radical impact that sin had on our bodies. And it's these consequences, okay, sin itself, that make the process of change necessary. So again, just the big picture is in Genesis 1, we needed God's counsel to glorify God. Now in Genesis 3, we need God's counsel also to change in order to glorify God. If you think about James, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, 
Okay, there are different ways that God now talks to us, okay, later on in the scripture where God calls us specifically not to do something that we're already doing, right? That's the impact that sin has had on us. And so now we need to change, okay, not just know God's will, but to change in order to glorify God. So we had immediate consequences. There were also eternal consequences, that is spiritual death, both physical and eternal. Tom has been preaching about that and getting closer to talking about those realities. And so we had separation from God, and one day we will die, and there is even a second death as well, too. And so we had immediate consequences and eternal consequences as well, too. And so we, we see its beginning, but we also see its continuation. Number two, sin's continuation. And so unfortunately, sin did not stop okay, with Adam and Eve. It's passed on through Adam. And we can see that here, this progression. A, the first man born, that was Cain. Okay, it didn't, sin didn't slowly, gradually get worse. Okay, it was bad. Okay, there was radical corruption right from the very beginning. Uh, Cain was jealous of his brother and killed him. We can see this in Genesis 6 as well, too. There's, there's uh, evil okay, over the face of the earth. Okay, their thoughts were evil continually. We fast forward B, the first king of Israel. This is Saul. He was a wicked king. And also to C, fast forward even more, to the assessment of all mankind at the time of Paul. Turn over to Romans 3, and we'll just look at some of the things that Paul says about mankind during his time. And this is a quotation from the Psalms, and so it was more than just at his time, certainly. Romans chapter 3. And I'll start in verse 10. It says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside and together have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing, bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so you can see a blindness to who God is, his glory. You can see sinful speech, sinful desires, okay, sinful actions. Right? This is the impact that ultimately sin had on human beings from the very beginning. And we can see its present status as well, too. Number three, Paul gives an assessment in these last days okay, about what's going to happen. And there he, he talks about wholesale iniquity, hypocrisy, apostasy, and persecution. And we certainly see those things in our world today. And so we see sin's beginning in Genesis 3 and its continuation and even its present status. Okay, the reality of these things, even in our hearts and in the hearts of those in this world. So as we look at number four, we look at it, sin's alternatives. Okay, that is the choices people have in responding to their sin. Okay, some people just flat out quit, many have. That is that they do nothing about their sin. They either embrace it, forget about it, just let it carry them along. That's one route, certainly. Or they can seek help from man's counsel B. They turn to psychology or maybe another religion okay, or something else. Or C, they can seek help from God and his word. And as you look at the verses okay, that Paul gave this present status, there's 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 13, and beginning in verses 14, okay, through 16, Paul talks about the impact that the Word of God has on us, that all Scripture is inspired, 
came profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, right? Equipped for every good work. And so as Paul looks at the solution to the problem of sin, it directly correlates to the word of God. That is an understanding and an impact of it on our lives very practically. And so we've looked at understanding man's need of change. We can see that as we look at the beginning of Genesis, the evil that takes place uh, from there, as well too, leading up all the way to today and, and, and our hearts in particular. And so again, post-Genesis 3, men do not only need God's counsel to glorify him, but also to change, ultimately to repent of sin. Okay, there was no need to repent in Genesis 1 and 2, but from 3 on, there certainly was in order to glorify God. And so let's, as we think about this, and understanding what needs to change, let's understand and look at the heart, okay? And so this is the, the micro look, looked at the macro look at the problem of sin. The micro look zooms in and it focuses on our own individual hearts. And that is the specific location of what needs to change, and that is the heart, because it is ultimately the source of our behavior. If you guys remember uh, Proverbs 4.23, I think we looked at that last time, it, says this, it says, watch over your heart, okay, with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. And so today we wanna understand the heart because from it comes all of our lives in particular. And so this answers the question, why is the heart important? Okay, said another way, the heart is who we are. The heart is who we are. And I just look at A there in your notes, you guys have a number of bullet points there that walk through some different lexical descriptions of the heart. And if you're not familiar with the lexicon, essentially what it is, is that Bible scholars, okay, look at different words and how they're used throughout the Bible and develop an understanding, okay, based upon how the authors use those words. And so here's the Brown Driver Briggs uh, lexicon. It describes the heart as this, as they studied. Some of these cross over a little bit, but there's some distinction in them. They say the heart, as it's taught in the Bible, is the inner man in contrast with the outer. The inner man that is more specifically the comprehending mind, affections, and will. Specific reference to the mind, of thoughts. Specific reference to the inclinations, resolutions, and determination of the will. The conscience, that is what we believe, in other words, is right and wrong. As the seat of the appetites and passions, as the seat of New Testament lusts and desires. The theological workbook of the Old Testament describes the heart this way. In its abstract meanings, heart became the richest biblical term for the totality of man's inner or immaterial nature. The three traditional personality functions of man that are emotion, thought, or will. Lastly here, the, the Greek lexicon says, the Greek English lexicon says, the center, the heart is the center and source of the whole inner life with its thinking, feeling, and volition the, of the faculty of thought, the understanding, of the will and its desires, that is to make up the mind, emotions, wishes, desires. And so B here seeks to kind of take all of these and summarize them, hopefully nice and neat. There was lots of crossover there. But this is, if we, as we look at those lexicons, what the Bible teaches are the four essential parts of the heart. If you saw back before, there looks like there's three mind affections and will. Uh, different people have different views on this. I, I believe personally that affections and emotions are different categories. That's how I was taught this, okay? But you're in good company if you believe it's three. Jonathan Edwards, okay, taught that. So uh, you're not in bad company if you believe it's three. 
but I'll, I'll walk you through uh, how and why I believe uh, there, there's four distinct ones. Number one is our cognitive abilities, that it's our thoughts, beliefs, what we believe is right and wrong, okay? Good and evil, etc. Where we develop our convictions, okay, and our conscience in particular. Okay, Hebrews 4.12 speaks about the thoughts and intentions of the heart, okay? And so the Bible clearly connects our thinking to our hearts, our inner man. It is also our affections, okay, what we love, okay, our desires, what we believe is beautiful, okay, attractive, what we want to go after ultimately, okay, and also, too, what's ugly, okay, repulsive, things that we want to stay away from. Psalm 37, verse 4, if you guys remember this text, it says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires, okay, of your heart, and so what we want and desire, okay, comes up out of our hearts as well, too. Our hearts are also the source of our volitional, okay, our decisions, our choices. That is our will. And Proverbs 20, verse 5 says that the purposes of a man's heart is like deep waters, okay, who, who, uh, and a man of understanding will draw it out. And so these purposes of the heart are in another passage in uh, Proverbs. It says the plans of a man's heart. And so as we think, as we desire different things, we make choices to pursue different things as well too. And then lastly here, the heart is also our emotions, what, we, what we're happy about, sad about, okay, encouraged, etc. cetera. Uh, Solomon said in Proverbs 17, verse 22, the joy or the rejoicing of the heart. And so we can see all these different functions or component parts of what the Bible calls our hearts, all right? This is, again, mission control, like we talked about last time. And here's one idea, just of why I kind of pull affections and emotions apart, is because what we desire, okay, I, I believe is a little different or distinct from the way that we feel about things in particular, okay? And so that's why I'd pull them apart. If you want to combine them, that's up to you, certainly, as well. But Here's how I understand the heart and just the flow. I think we talked about this a little bit last time. But the, the inroads, okay, or the end gate into our hearts is our thinking. Okay, this is why the truth of God's word is so vital because uh, thoughts, truth, okay, shapes the rest of our hearts. Okay, what we love, the decisions that we make, how we feel about different things. Okay, truth impacts all of that. The way we think is vital. Because the way we think about things shapes the way we, way we, what we love, okay, what's beautiful. Okay, when we think things are good and right, okay, they're going to be attractive and lovely. When we think things are bad or evil, we're going to think they're repulsive okay, and ugly. And as we look at those two different things, we're going to pursue the things that we believe are good and stay away from and avoid the things that we think are bad. And whether we get the things we want and desire... Okay, we have positive emotions. When we don't get those things, we tend to have negative emotions. We feel sad, depressed, discouraged, whatever it may be, right? And so that's the basic kind of outworking of the heart to some degree, but we're gonna talk a lot more about it as we continue here. What the Bible also teaches, which we just looked at this verse, is that the heart is hard to understand. Proverbs 20, verse five, not only says the purposes of the man's heart, but it says they are like deep waters. And so it's this picture biblically of this deep well, okay, where you have to have the right tools, okay, the understanding to be able to draw out and to understand the heart, whether it be your heart or another person's heart, 
Okay, but it says later in the verse, a man of understanding will draw it out. Where do we get understanding? From the word of God. Okay, the word of God makes wise the simple. It gives understanding in particular. So if we know what the Bible teaches about the heart, then we can ask heart questions and understand and draw up what's ultimately going on so that we can understand why they feel the way they feel, why they're behaving the way they're behaving as well. D, the heart is also sinful. All right, Jeremiah 17 talks about the deceitfulness, okay, the sinfulness of the human heart. And so here are some conclusions. E, number one, the heart is not fundamentally good. It's impacted by sin. Even believers struggle with unruly wants and desires or as it's called, remnant sin. The heart is also alive. We're constantly thinking and desiring and feeling. Okay, not, it's not passive. It doesn't take a break, in other words. Number four, the heart takes work to understand. And so, But those are things that we can certainly do and part of what we're gonna be doing today to draw it out to truly understand it. And so as we continue to understand what needs to change, we looked at the location that is the heart and what the Bible says its component parts are, what is the heart, but now we wanna look at the occupation of our hearts. That is what drives the heart, what animates the heart, that is worship in particular. Okay, why do we think what we think? What do we desire what we desire? It's about worship. All right, A, we are worshipers. Isaiah 43, verse seven, God talking about his people, he says, whom I made, okay, my people whom I made for my glory. God made us, created us to worship him. Or maybe another familiar passage, 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 31, says that whether we eat or drink or whatever it is that we do, we're to do it all for the glory of God. And so we were made to worship him. But, okay, that's true for his people, but what about others as well too? Turn over to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. This is true, okay, that all men are ultimately worshipers, and Paul here, via the Holy Spirit, explains that in verse 25 in Romans chapter 1. It says, for they, those are, those are people who rejected God, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And so when they rejected God, and they turned their own way, they didn't stop being worshipers. Okay, God made us fundamentally to worship him. And so when man turns away from him, they don't stop worshiping him. They just worship something else. They worship the creation. Okay, we'll look at that more extensively here in just a moment. Okay, and so here's the question as we do that. What does it mean practically that we are worshipers? So, so let's connect worship to the heart. Okay, another way to say worship is worth-ship. Okay, worth-ship. That is worth, what we treasure, what we value, okay? Think of as weighty, important, okay? What sets our priorities, what we're willing to sacrifice for, okay? These things, these are worship words, and we're gonna look at more here in just a moment. One of the key texts as we think about worship in the heart is Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Let me read it for you. It says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store it for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here it is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, worship animates the heart. It's what drives our thoughts, our desires, our will, okay, our emotions as well too. 
Okay, and so let's look more at all people as worshipers in particular, all people as worshipers. And we'll do that through looking at some key worship words, okay, some key worship words. If you can see up on your screen there, we have a picture of the temple, okay, up in Green Bay. Uh, There's one here as well, too. When I was doing some of my studies, I I spent a significant portion of time, about an hour and a half south with my in-laws of Green Bay. And so on game days, this was in the fall, you know, it's Starbucks working sometimes, and like half the population owns Green, like can fully deck themselves out in Green Bay gear and their dogs as well, too. And so it was a ripe illustration, at least in my mind at that time, to draw it back to. But I think sports in our culture is certainly helpful as we think about worships, worship. And these words on your screen, there's about 50 in the Bible. We'll just go through a number here just to understand. And so as we think about worship, okay, and us as worshipers, okay, as people root for their sports teams, okay, is always worship, false worship, sinful? Not always, of course not. But I wanted to see how we interact with different things in our lives based upon the fact that at our fundamental core, we are worshipers. And so worshipers study, okay? They're interested, okay? Things they think are valuable, worthy, they want to know more about them, okay? And so a worshiper of sports would want to know the offenses, the defenses that they run, okay? What, what draft ranking, okay, with the different recruits, okay? Uh, you know, what's, what are their stats? How fast do they run? You know, 40 time or whatever it is. And the plays that they made, you know, all, all those things. I mean, you could, you could just get completely lost, okay, in all the information, okay, that goes along with different sports teams, their histories, etc. Okay, these folks, okay, worshipers are dedicated, okay, to the things that they worship, Okay, they make sacrifices, okay, of time and of money, okay? If you're a, a lover of sports, okay, particularly this sport, you're probably gonna give at least three to five hours, okay, unless you have that condensed version that you can watch really quickly, okay, to this sport every single week during the fall. And so you're giving a significant portion of time, oftentimes money, okay? Those jerseys and the, memor- the memorabilia, all that stuff is not cheap. And so you, you give of yourself, okay, for that. Uh, we often witness, we're telling our friends, okay, I, I long ago uh, stopped seeking to convert my family in Wisconsin, okay, I realize that is completely fruitless. If you, if you know a Green Bay Packers fan, they're just going to be a Green Bay Packers fan forever, and that's just how, how that works ultimately, and that's totally fine, but we tell, okay, we, we sing the praises, did you see this play, did you see this, wouldn't it be awesome if you were a fan just like me, you know as well too. We're excited, okay? You could say discouragement or depression might be a uh, worship word as well, too, okay? Dr. Street used to say that uh, sports fans are bipolar, you know, they're, they have the highs and, and the lows, okay, depending upon what's going on in the game. Uh, they, they identify, another worship word, okay? Uh, they are Packers fans or Cowboys fans. They wear the jerseys, okay? They put the stickers on their car. They deck out the rooms in their house, okay? That with all, all these items. And so they seek these things. They desire them. They go after. They long for them. And they serve the purposes, okay, of what they worship in particular. Okay, as we think about Christian worship, okay, we study the Lord. We want to know who he is. Okay, he is most valuable and important. So we want to understand his will, his ways, what he thinks about certain things, how we can please and honor him. Okay, so we're dedicated we, we've dedicated ourselves in that way. That's why you guys are here. You give your time. Okay, this is a sacrifice. 
in some way, just like it's a sacrifice to beat a Green Bay Packers fan without your, uh, fan without your shirt on in, in January, okay, at the game, okay? You won't even know, okay, ultimately that you're sacrificing, you know, potentially. Okay, I remember a missionary was asked, how did they make such great sacrifices? They'd given up everything to go and serve the Lord overseas, and their immediate response was, I haven't sacrificed anything. And they'd sacrificed everything, but it didn't feel that way to them at all. Why? Because they loved Christ. And so that's where they wanted to be. Those things weren't valuable, important to them. It wasn't a sacrifice to give those things up. Okay, and so dedication, sacrifice, witness. We want to tell people about Jesus, okay, because of how awesome and amazing he is, what he's done for us, our lives, our families, etc. So we sing his praises, whether privately, corporately, etc. We are excited. There's, there's nothing more exciting, I think, than to see somebody you know and love come to know and embrace Christ and to see their lives radically change. There's, there's nothing more exciting than that. We identify with Christ. We say we're Christians. That's how we, we talk about who we are at our most fundamental core. We're believers and followers, disciples of Jesus, and so therefore we seek him to know him, right, to serve him and his purposes, okay, in particular. And so hopefully this makes sense as you guys think about just us as worshipers. This is just the way we are made to live and to function, okay? Why worship is so critical, so vital, and why, again, going back to Proverbs 4.23, watching over the heart is so vital as well, too, okay? We're prone to false worship, and we'll look at that more in just a minute. Why is it important? Okay, as we think about change, we looked at, we're looking at what needs to change and specifically the heart. The reason is because worship is vital in the process of change. Okay, as we look at and behold Jesus Christ, number one, he's ultimately the only one worthy of our worship. That's the way we were made and designed. Okay? But also to be, we become like what we worship. And so that's why change is so vital and important. A guy writing about Greg Beale's book, he wrote this. He said, Greg Beale titled his landmark book, We Become What We Worship. It's a great book. I think Lance brought it up a number of months ago, a year ago, something like that, in the evening service. But here's the thesis of this book. What people revere, okay, what they worship, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. Uh, Beale traces the theme of worship throughout Scripture to show that we are worshipers and that our worship exposes and changes us. We either revere the world and are conformed to the sinful patterns of the world, or we revere God and are progressively conformed into his likeness. Beale's point is that our worship and affections right now are pointers to our future trajectory. Our worship is either aimed at our ruin or our worship is aimed at our restoration, but it is aimed in either case. We are becoming what we worship. Thus, the process of sanctification is the gracious redirecting of our worship and affections away from worldliness and towards God's image in Jesus as we are conformed to that image. And so 2 Corinthians 3.18 captures this perfectly. It says that, that we are beholding, as we behold the glory of the Lord, that we are being then transformed into that same image okay, from glory okay, to glory. And so as we look at and behold how great and awesome Jesus Christ is, okay, we want to be like him ultimately. Okay? We don't want the influences of sports or whatever it is to ultimately shape our lives. We want Christ to shape our lives. I'll give you an example. 
I was teaching a course a number of years ago about this very same topic, and I asked a group of men if they've seen worship, okay, what they've loved shaped their lives, and this guy's hand shot up immediately, and I thought, uh-oh, you know, who, knows, who knows what's gonna be said, but he, he, he talked about March Madness, okay, the basketball tournament, and he said, Daniel, I watched every game, I loved it. I just, and what he loved about it was the competition, how intense it was. He just said it was so, so amazing. Just get the adrenaline going, I was so excited, it was so much fun. He said, but you know what, I, I started to notice that I was competing with my wife and everything. Everything was about winning, okay? And he said it really began to ruin my marriage. And he said, I had, to, I had to turn the TV off. I just had to get rid of all of it. And he had to reorient, okay, his worship, his attention, what he loved and thought was valuable around Christ, okay, uh, to ultimately save his marriage. And so our, our, our worship transforms us, it changes us. Another way to think about this too, you can see it in little kids, and maybe this is true in each one of our lives as well too, and ladies, when you were younger, okay, and you watched a princess movie, okay, what did you want to be like? Or men, maybe you watched a, a ninja okay, show or a cowboy show or something like that, okay? You, you watch the show, what did you want to go and do immediately afterwards, okay? And sometimes my girls, you know, have their princess dress on before they, the show even starts, you know? But they want, to go, they want to go be a princess, okay, and have tea parties and do all that kind of stuff. And guys, okay, as we watched the ninja movie, what did you want to do? Well, you wanted to go kick something, okay? You wanted to be a ninja, okay? Why was that? Because you saw, okay, on the screen something you believed was awesome, was valuable, was amazing. And so you wanted to be like that. You wanted to emulate it. And again, this is why worship is so vital in the process of change, because it is core, it's central to why we change, how we change, okay? If something is that we already have is better, why would we want to go and be something else, okay? Only if it's something better, okay? More glorious, more important, okay? More supreme, and that's where we find Christ, ultimately, as well, too, okay? Our worship shapes us, it impacts us. It's either, for, it's either Christ or it's something else, ultimately. All right, let's look back at the heart. Okay, the big picture here. This time, let's look at the heart okay, in greater detail. We looked at this uh, diagram, I think, last time that we met. And uh, let me just kind of review it just a little bit. This, as you can see right in the middle, the thoughts, the affections, the will, the feelings, and how those come up, okay? That, he, that uh, Proverbs 4.23 passage, right? That how we're thinking, how we're feeling, etc., okay, determines, okay, our behavior. How, what we choose to do and not do, what we say, etc. All, all of that comes up out of our hearts, okay, in particular. And this is fueled, as we learned today, by what we worship, what we love, okay, what's most important and valuable to us. And so let me give you an example with this in mind, okay? And uh, let's just say it's the tired husband, okay? They're coming home, it's Friday afternoon, okay? They've been at work, okay, for five days. It's, they're emotionally tired, intellectually tired, okay, just tired. And on the way home, their heart's very focused on how tired they are. And how, you know what, it would just be so nice when I got home if things were easy. And I could just go relax, all right, and just kick back my feet. And you know what, 
I'm just, I'd, li- I'd really like to look at who's going to play this weekend and just look at the school, whatever, okay? Just things just relaxing. And you open the door, and it's anything but relaxing, okay? You have small children, potentially. They're fighting. They're arguing. Your wife looks at you with that, you know, uh, you know pull your, their, her hair out kind of look. You know, that it's, been, it's been a hard day. And you're like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. You know, I mean, that's, that's probably what's going to come out of your mouth if what you want most is comfort. Excuse me, everybody. You know, you're getting in the way of what I really want the most. You guys figure this out yourself. I'm going to go relax, okay? Might be how that would be handled, potentially, if that's what the heart is fixed upon, okay? But let's rewind a little bit. Let's say this husband, same circumstances, is coming home, and they know God's will, and they've been working through scriptures, Okay, maybe they've had some of those interactions where they failed okay, in that moment. And now they're coming home and they're tired, they're exhausted. They say, no, no, okay, this, this can't rule my, my evening. Okay, my most important job okay, is coming up. That's the care of my family, loving my wife, shepherding my kids, uh, encouraging them, serving them. Lord, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't feel like that right now. I feel, I feel wiped out, tired, exhausted. But you know what? I, I know that you can give me strength. Would you please help me? And Lord, I want to be your kind of man. I want to be Christ-like. I want to be patient. I want to be kind. I want to be attentive to needs. I want to be servant-hearted. Okay, and if we're focused on Christ, okay, that's likely the person, okay, that we're going to be to some degree or another, okay, when we get home. And so as you guys think about it, there's, there's two paths in some sense. We're going to look at a a uh, form kind of at the very end that's going to show one of those. It's going to be the, the big picture diagram with the three trees diagram. And it's, it's going to be an overlay of understanding the heart in particular. We'll look at that one more in the weeks ahead. But usually when people come in okay, to get help, <clears throat> they're operating on that right-hand side or in your guys' the left-hand side. They're focused on comfort or things being a certain way okay, or whatever it may be and there's been sin, there's been struggles, there's been conflict and difficulty, okay, in particular. And what we're wanting to do as counselors, okay, even if it's just in our own heart, we notice that's what's going on in our life. We want to redirect, okay, the worship and the focus of our hearts back to Christ, back to the Word of God to give us wisdom and direction for how to live our lives, that purpose and aim and goal that God's Word ultimately provides, that we would be a Christ-like servant, okay, Christ-like person, a person who pleases God, that is God's kind of man or woman. But unfortunately, as we strive to do that, there's things that get in the way. And so let's look at three, the frustration, that is specifically idolatry, okay, these strong desires at times that can overtake, okay, for comfort or whatever it may be. We'll look at some of the more in just a moment. Here's a definition of idolatry that I think is helpful. Uh, Ted Tripp said, or Paul Tripp, excuse me, said that an idol of the heart is anything that rules me other than God. As worshiping beings, human beings always worship someone or something. This is not a situation where some people worship and some people don't. If God isn't ruling my heart, someone or something will. It is the way that we are made. Uh, Dr. Scott says it this way. You may have this uh, definition, I'm not sure, but he says, an idol is anything that we constantly make equal to or more important than God in our attention, desire, devotion, and choices. All idols are objects of our lusts, okay, our strong desires, and thus assist us in worshiping ourselves for our own glory. 
And that's exactly why Jesus came to redeem us, okay? Idolatry is about self, okay? It's a form of self-worship in a sense that we put our desires and what we want ultimate and first, not what Christ wants and what he thinks is ultimate. That's 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died, Jesus died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died, okay, and for our sake was raised. And so as you look at idolatry, we can look at some of these kind of more clarifying points, okay, A through G. Idolatry can be wanting or desiring something that God does not want us to desire, okay? This could be something sexually immoral, for example, something outside the bounds of what he's called us to desire, that fruit that Eve took, for example. B, wanting something that God wants or desires, but wanting it so much that one becomes ungodly to get it or ungodly if they don't. This is very often, okay, the case when we see idolatry is either wanting a good thing so badly that they're willing to sin if they get it, okay, or don't get it. Okay. Um, C, being controlled by expectations and becoming ungodly in thought, word, or deed when those expectations are not realized, things didn't go the way we wanted. Perceiving a deserve right and following through, this is D, with ungodly thoughts, words, and actions to try and get it when that right is denied. Believing in something, E, a standard or rule that is not of God, so a legalistic standard that leads us to ungodly practices. F, having a mindset that is against the truth of God's word that leads to ungodliness in thoughts, words, and actions. <clears throat> but I'd just say here again, going back to Dr. Scott's definition, an idol is anything we consistently make equal to or more important than God, okay, in our attention, desire, devotion, choices. Okay, what do you sin to get? And what do you sin when you do not get? Okay, those things likely, those answering those questions will point you, okay, to what you are living for in particular. Here are some, and this is in your notes, if you want to follow along, G, some contemporary labels for idolatrous lusts, okay, that all are self-serving or can be. Desire for man's approval, attention, okay, health, wealth, pleasure, safety, comfort, leisure, sports, security, significant, significance, respect, fairness, justice, success, possessions, freedom, independence, money, ministry, education, marriage, family, traditions, perfectionism, workaholism, control, appearance, love, peace, basically everything, okay, to some degree, if, if that makes sense. <clears throat> and so we could really want anything, okay, because of the corruption, the sin in our hearts, we could make anything, any good thing to more important, okay, than God. And we can live for that thing, demand that things in our, things in our hearts, and sin, and we don't get that, okay? Life can become all about health, okay? It can become all about things being easy, or people liking us, okay? Or success, or financial security, or significance amongst our peer group. It can be, life can become about all these things. <clears throat> and as you guys think about idolatry, here's just another kind of just helpful nuance to this as well too. But as you think about, okay, your individual hearts, and you think about these things that you might worship, okay, usually all of us, okay, if I read all these, we probably could say we've struggled with all of them, okay, at some point, all right? But there are usually some, okay, that are of greater significance in each one of our hearts than others, okay? We all don't struggle in the exact same way with everything. And so what I'd say is, as you look at your own heart, or as you just understand idolatry in general, is that there are gonna be some altars, if we wanna call them, that are just off the charts. Okay, maybe some that are smaller, maybe some that are teeny tiny. 
okay? But understanding idolatry in this way, okay, will be helpful, okay? We, we struggle with maybe all of it. I remember, <clears throat> for example, when we first moved to Texas, uh, we were able to afford a home, purchase a home, move in, which we were so excited about. Remember, we were just blown away. You know, we came from California, which we thought we were going to be able to afford a home when we were 50, you know, 50s or 60s or something like that. And, uh, you know, homes here were half price, you know, so we were, we were excited and thankful. And um, so we moved in, and, you know, all of our stu- stuff for the first time in a very long time didn't touch, okay? So when you live in a closet, basically, it all touches. And so, you know, we were, we were excited <clears throat> about that. And so we were, we were just so thankful for God's provision. We were so excited to be here. We certainly still are. And, but as I was driving through the neighborhood, those months afterwards, probably four or five, six months, I just started noticing, you know what, this, isn't this interesting? Our, our house is like one of the smallest ones in our neighborhood. Isn't that interesting? You know, wow, they, that couple, they just, it's just the two of them, they have the biggest house in the whole neighborhood. Isn't that, that's really nice. You know, they have a yard. <clears throat> they have a really big yard, too. <laughs> what do they do with all those rooms, you know, in that house? They bet you he has a weight room. You know, he probably has a guest room. They probably just have a room for nothing. You know, they just have nothing in there. You know, and it's, it's, it's the, the, your heart starts to think about those things. Discontentment starts to grow, and whether it be greed or jealousy or whatever's going on, you know, a lust or materialism, you know, those things can start to impact your heart. But I remember when those thoughts started coming to mind that I just went to different passages, you know, in Philippians that talked about uh, contentment, First uh, uh, Timothy six that talked about contentment as well too, and they were just profoundly helpful. And that was one of those kind of small things in my heart. I looked at a couple of verses, and it was done. It, it just went away. But some of those bigger ones, they, they don't go away. Okay, with a verse or two. Okay, they stick around, and maybe you even need to maintain them to some degree. There's dispositions. Okay, I struggle with control or whatever it may be. Maybe it is materialism. For you in particular, independence or health. Okay, and maybe the, the quality of your health okay, determines that to some degree, right? That it's, it's going to be an ongoing struggle, right? Where we need to continue to look back to God's word to inform our hearts, encourage our hearts, okay, in some of these different struggles. So as I meet with people, I'm not looking for the little tiny ones, okay, that take a verse or two. Usually they're not coming to, to have help with those. They're talking, they're coming for the ones that are those big towers in their hearts, okay? The grass around that idol has long since died, okay? Because the knees have hit that area so often, there's no grass that can possibly grow there. The soil is so compacted. And so we want to understand those things, okay? As couples talk, okay, as they have arguments and you know their hearts, you will know why one is saying this and one is saying this, why they're concerned about those two different things and can truly help them to work through and to work those things out in particular. H, here are some sure tip-offs to idolatrous lusts. Words, okay, expectations, needs, rights, must-haves. I have to have this, okay? But usually someone says it a lot. They talk a lot about things being easy, comfortable, okay, or things being a very certain kind of way, okay, somebody that may want control, or maybe they talk about their health all the time or sports all the time, okay, what's on their heart, okay, is ultimately going to come out, okay, and if it garners their attention and is more important a priority than Christ, it can be idolatrous. Number two, misplaced priorities, okay, extremes, perfectionism, workaholism, unfaithfulness in different areas that can indicate an idol, an idol sinful patterns like lying, life-dominating sins, etc., Sinful responses, anger, okay, that husband who comes home who wants comfort, getting angry, 
when there's no comfort to be found. For example, self-pity, sadness, and us not getting what we want, okay, and our, our, our things we believe will make us most happy, depression, suicidal thoughts, etc. These can be things that tip us off, that help us to see idolatrous lust in our own hearts. But again, it's, it goes back to this. What will we sin to get or sin if we do not get? That is really, those are really important questions. All right, let's look at the big picture diagram that is at least parts of it as we look at some illustrations here in particular. So these are not in your notes, and if you're listening online as well too and you're not, you're not looking at the video, it might be challenging to kind of understand this, and so I'd encourage you to, to go and check out uh, the video, the slides in particular, so you can understand the walkthrough of what we're looking at here. But as we understand the heart, I, I want you guys to think, okay, about just the heart and how it comes out and manifests itself in different ways, okay? People that are anxious or people that are angry, these are the two examples we'll look at today, can be angry or anxious for very different reasons. And as you get to know them and talk with them and ask them good questions about their circumstances, about their thinking, etc., it will help to boil down and to help you understand and hopefully them to understand what's really going on in their hearts, why they're anxious or why they're angry. All right, let's look at some case studies. We'll start with anger here in particular. Usually the screen is right next to me, so let's figure this out here. All right. So the presenting problem is, is where we normally start. Someone will come in and say, I have a struggle with anger. Okay, and so that's the presenting problem in this uh, scenario, outbursts of anger. And the box right in the middle, okay, with the sun in it there, that's the heat, that's the pressures, the problems, the difficulties of life, okay? And so in this person's life, okay, they've come to have some help with outbursts of anger. Here's what's going on. Here are the pressures externally, the circumstances. Their work schedule is difficult, okay? Lots of pressure. Parenting is very trying, okay? Also very difficult. The home, regularly messy, disheveled, and they're feeling overwhelmed and exhausted, okay? So here's some of the fruit that's coming out in their life in particular. They're angry. They're raising their voice, yelling, okay? Angry words. They're regularly frustrated, so that's kind of a constant theme in their own heart. They leave situations unresolved, okay? There's problems, conflicts, difficulties, but they, they leave, okay? They slam doors behind them. They don't want to address conflicts, okay? They ultimately avoid things that are hard and difficult. And so some of the consequences are that they have conflict with their wife and a strained relationship with their kids, okay? They're not handling things biblically, ultimately. And so that emotion there is anger, okay? And you can see how that comes out in fruit above. And again, just a quick reminder, the roots below are the inner man, our thinking, desires, all that the heart ultimately is. And then above, the kind of tree trunk and above is the outer man. The emotions are right there in the middle because certainly they're a part of the heart. But they, as they say, the saying goes, we wear our emotions at times on our sleeves. And so they come out very clearly as well too. Here's his thoughts as you begin to talk with this person. Go back a little bit, sorry. All right, you guys get to, got, you get to see the answer, unfortunately. Um, Here's his thinking, I work hard all day long, it'd be nice to come home and be able to relax. Why does everything have to be so difficult, so hard? Can't others just figure it out with my help, without my help? Okay, you guys saw the last slide there. What, what might this person be wanting, okay, desiring? Well, comfort, rest, okay, that's, that's what drives their heart as you listen to their thinking, okay, what they most desire and want, what they're living for, they want life to be easy. 
And so now as you look up, you can see on the right-hand column from the very bottom, that dotted line, that's an arrow going all the way to the top, how what is going on in the heart, okay, below the surface, okay, that all the issues of life come up out of that. Why are they yelling? Well, they're not comfortable. Why are they frustrated? Well, things are hard and difficult. Look at all the pressures of life, okay? Why are they slamming doors? Okay, well, that's the easiest thing to do, confronting the problem, working through that. All the hard work that takes, that's not something they want to be involved in, okay? And so as you can see, their heart shapes all their behavior. Most often as you guys, uh, as people come, and, and really just as we think, I think the tendency for all of us, okay, as we think about why do we have the struggles we have is we look at the heat. Life's hard, things are difficult, this is happening in the home. That's why I'm angry. Okay, does that make sense? I think we can see a correlation to all those things, but the truth is, is no, it's, it's the heart. Okay, if we had a different heart, and that's what really the left side of the diagram is all about, changing the heart, that heat could be the same and we would respond very differently. Okay, think about Jesus, okay? The cross was absolutely the worst thing that could ever happen in terms of being uncomfortable, okay? But Jesus loved people perfectly. And that's the type of heart through the word of God we can understand the heart of Christ and to be willing to do the hard work, okay? It takes to be Christ-like and to love and serve other people. Love takes hard work and this person needs to grow Okay, an appreciation of the love of Christ, okay, and a willingness, okay, to do that as well, too. Let's look at the next set of slides. We're going to look at another angry person in particular. Do we go to 15 or 20? I think it's, is it 15? All right, well, in there, it's fair. All right, <clears throat> same problem, okay, very similar uh, pressure, heat in their life. Boss who constantly makes bad decisions, they, they frame it just a little differently. Kids rarely obey or do what they should. Home regularly messy. They feel overwhelmed and exhausted, okay? They're angry. Same two. The first two, yelling, raising voices, regularly frustrating. Here's some differences. Pushes others to resolve issues they are not ready to resolve. Kicked open a door that was closed on him. Wants to address issues now. Okay with starting conflict, okay? Similarities, okay? Outbursts of anger, but very different behavior. Let's look down at the thinking in particular. They think things like this. They do not understand why my wife is unwilling to address issues. Why will my kids not simply obey when I ask? Okay, I think we all know the answer to that one. Is it so hard for my boss to see how if he or she just made this decision, it would be so much better? Okay, what, what might be governing this person's heart in particular? Yeah, control, potentially, all right. Yeah, potentially, I didn't, there's, there's not anything really about somebody, the way they think or treat them necessarily, but maybe the, them responding to them in obedience could be respect. But yeah, controlling, you know, potentially in the sense of lording it over. Okay, they, they want to be in control of their boss's decisions. He wants the boss to do what he wants, the kids to do what he wants, the house to be just the way that he wants. Okay, and so since control, things being just a certain way really rules the heart, not comfort, not ease, their behavior is very, very different. And so as you look from the heart up, as the heart responds to very similar circumstances, they're just phrased differently, okay, from this person's perspective, a very different result, okay, happens as well too. So does this make sense as you guys think about the hearts, okay, and, and what drives, okay, people in particular? 
Uh, there's some slides also too about anxiety, but uh, I'll have you guys look at those on your own, own since we're right here at the very end of our time. But hopefully as you guys have seen the outworking of that, how, we, how you can see as well too that different ideas, okay, different ways of thinking, okay, things that are then desired can drive the heart okay, to, to live in a way that ultimately does not please and honor and glorify God. If God isn't ruling our heart, going back to Paul Tripp's definition, something else will. Okay, it's the way that we're made. As Christ comes into view, okay, I love, I think it's Psalm 16, verse 8, it says, I set the Lord continually before me, right? That we want to please him, be like him, honor him, serve him, etc. This is absolutely what we need to do. Very last, looking at understanding how we change, this is just a kind of a precursor to looking forward. That is a micro look at how our worship, worshiping hearts are transformed. We need regeneration, okay? Not rehabitual, not, uh, excuse me, rehabilitation. Okay, we need a gospel transformation, okay, that only the heart, okay, can, that God can do in the heart to reorient us towards true worship. And then also to the transformation that is particular sanctification, progressive sanctification through the renewing of the heart and the mind. Okay, this is a battle. It's a war. What we've looked at above, okay, this, this battle for our desires, our allegiance in our own hearts is a war that rages each day, okay, in our own hearts as we seek to put off and put on can be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Very lastly, the end of this battle is glorification. That is at Christ's return when we're made just like him. Right? There's gonna be a day where this battle does not rage, okay, where we love the Lord, okay, remnant sin, all of that is removed, and we love God and love other people perfectly. It's gonna be an amazing day. And we'll look at that process over the next three lessons. We'll look at uh, sanctification, sin, guilt, repentance, forgiveness, all of those topics in the weeks ahead. I'll look forward to doing that, going through that with you guys shortly. Let's go ahead and pray as we close our time. Father, we're so thankful for uh, the truth that we were able to go over today. We pray, Lord, that each one of us would, uh, would have a better understanding and, and to be able to practically apply. Lord, these things are so practical as we look at why, what we do and why we do it day to day. Lord, I pray that the worship of, of who you are, Lord, would increase. Lord, as we looked at as young kids, ninjas or princesses, Lord, that you would be the one that we continue to find uh, awe, right, perfections, and that wants that we are excited to, to be like, Lord, that we go off wanting to be just like you. Lord, we love you. We pray, God, your great help in all these things. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.